Well, hello, I'm Patrick Forbes, and I'm the director of The Phantom, which is out in theaters now. And so go in and watch it and is streaming as well. Texas was a very violent place. Eventually, law and order and the thin veneer of civilization improved things. Wanda Lopez was working alone, and while on the phone to a police dispatcher, she was stabbed to death. Took off to the right. Dark pants, white shirt. Freeze on Wolf City Police. They had the guy. It made sense. The case was closed. The client is steadfast. I don't want to plead guilty because I am not guilty. Maybe one day the truth will come out. He gave us the name Carlos Hernandez. Carlos Hernandez looks just like Carlos de Luna. We got every Carlos Hernandez in Carpus Christi. They was all dead ends. They lie about things they have done, and they lie about things they haven't done. Carlos Hernandez was a phantom. He really, truly may be innocent, and there's not a damn thing anybody can do to stop this. They don't care. If you're Mexican and you have no money, you're going to die. I asked him, who is Carlos Hernandez? He said, you know who Carlos Hernandez is. There's not always two sides to a story. Sometimes there's three, four, or five. The evidence didn't match the state's theory. None of it makes sense. Carlos Hernandez was the police informant. The police denied that he even existed. He was telling everybody that he did it. For some reason, they released him. It made me question everything about the death penalty. Maybe one day the truth will come out. That is a trailer from the documentary, The Phantom. And this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, an Austin and London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. And once again, we're talking about the death penalty in the state of Texas. The recently released documentary, The Phantom, shines a light on a capital murder case, but probably in ways most of you have never experienced before. Joining us to discuss the film, the case, Texas, the death penalty, as well as the art of storytelling, is award-winning director Patrick Forbes. Patrick, welcome to Factual America. Hi there. Yeah, how are things with you? Well, obviously, as a nation, we're in sadness. People are rending their clothes in the streets because we lost at the soccer last night. And it's raining. So, you know, it's a traditional picture of, of London, England. Yeah, so to set the context there for those of you, because these, I've been told podcasts have a life of like seven years. Uh, this is uh, July 12th, 2021, the day after football was supposed to come home. Uh, but it didn't, and all of us who live in uh, England, uh, well, I, I speak for myself, obviously, but I have a bit of a sore head today. Um, and uh, it's probably a few of those gin and tonics I had last night watching the the match that went longer than expected. But uh, I think you've got a uh, you've got a film called Brexit, a very British coup. I was going to say this is almost football, a very English ending, is one way of uh, 
Have we lost you, Patrick? <laughs> oh, no, there you go. I uh, thought we'd lost Brexit, a very British period, has, has, uh, Ameri- has a very odd American connection in that uh, several of the people in it showed it mm. to a man with a large amount of orange hair and said, look, this is the way you can become president. So well, there you it go. may be that democracy <clears throat> was leaving home, at least in part, as a result of this. <laughs> well, more... Plenty of stuff, plenty of things to talk about. But the film we're talking about mostly this evening uh, is The Phantom. It uh, debuted at Tribeca in June, uh, released by Greenwich Entertainment. Uh, I think you told me, well, I think we've heard earlier that it's uh, in theaters in the U.S. and will be making its way to cinemas here in the U.K. and hopefully around the world. So thanks so much, Patrick, for coming on to the program. And thanks so much for making the film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, precisely as some of our listeners know, I've got Texas connections. So this is quite, uh, I thought it was quite, uh, well, we'll go more into this, uh, in a, in a bit, but let's get, if you don't mind, get us started. Um, what is the Phantom all about? Well, it's all about, uh, a terrible, well, the film starts with a terrible night, mm, blind interruption, film starts with a terrible night in 1983 in downtown Corpus Christi, when, uh, a clerk at a gas station was attacked and brutally murdered. And half an hour later, cops who flooded the area pulled out a guy from under a truck and he was half naked, stinking of drink, possibly more. And as he was pulled out, he said, hey, I'm going to beat this one like I beat every other one. So you'll be unsurprised to hear that, and the guy's name was Carlos de Luna. You'll be unsurprised to hear that the police thought they'd got their man. And the film basically explores whether they did or didn't. Okay. And and so what you, your film, and I can say as someone who's watched this, and maybe, and you can tell me how much you're concerned about spoiler alerts for those people, because I think your film, your well, I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, it's a history, you know, this has happened way in the past, but yet it's got so many, it's an incredible story. It's got so many, it's got more twists and turns in the Oasis River that flows nearby. Uh, it's kind of worthy of Victor Hugo. So, you know, you might, I don't know how much we want to go into details of this, but at the same time, it's, it is quite an incredible story. Oh, it's an amazing story because he wasn't a lovely guy. He genuinely wasn't a lovely guy. And everything that could go wrong for him did. You know, he looks terrible as he's pulled out from under the truck. He gets to trial. He's given a hopeless lawyer. He, um, that hopeless lawyer is joined by a really good lawyer with only 10 days to go. But you know, what can he do in 10 days? And he's only got 160 bucks to do any research. And it's all looking really bad. And just as he's about to go to trial, he comes up with this apparently crazy defense. It wasn't me. It was another guy called Carlos. And everybody just at the touch looked at him like, what? Yeah, you've got to be kidding me. So because precisely because just before that, he'd had another story that. Yeah. That, that, that was completely false. I mean, they've, they've, they debunked that one immediately. Yeah. He, he, he was a terrible, terrible witness. I mean, he said, you know, he was going to meet a couple of girls. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely right. He, he was going to meet a couple of girls and then they were going to go uh, to the ice skating rink. And so the brilliant, I have to say it, uh, prosecuting attorney says, right, well, you know, 
will go and find these girls. When they find one of them, she's nine months pregnant. And she said, what's he talking about? It wasn't me. It was that night I was having my baby shower. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, they produce that on the stand and his case starts to crumble right in front of his eyes. I was talking to the very nice guy who defended him, the competent attorney. Yeah. And he said, I just couldn't believe it. I just, you know, that moment, I just thought, what have we got here? This is yeah. going so wrong. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, I mean, um, and the other thing is about the, as you say, the, the, the brilliant uh, DA or assistant DA or whatever he, he was. But uh, I mean, this, he comes up with this story about this other Carlos and um, let's face it, people, there's been lots of stories done about death penalty in the state, especially the state of Texas. I'm from Texas originally. Um, a lot of prosecutors. Where, where from? I'm, from San, I'm from San Antonio. So I know, ah. I know I have some insights into corpus. So uh, um, um let me just say, I was going to say later, you've, 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 your film's very evocative of a time and a place, I will say. Uh, oh, someone, wow. so, you know, but we can talk more about that in a minute. Um, if, or we could do it now. But I mean, I think he, you know, a lot of prosecutors have said, ah, oh, he's coming up with another story. I don't even need, but they did at least apparently go do a little research. Let's try to find this other Carlos. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and they came back and said, well, we can't find the guy. Yeah, absolutely. Because the guy who's the the assistant DA, who, as you yeah. might say, is the main prosecutor, and he's six months, he's new to town. And I suspect yeah. the impression I have of him then as now is mm. that he is a, he's brilliant, he's thorough, and weirdly now he's opposed to the death penalty. Um, yeah. So I, I believe him when he says, I thought that I'd got all the Carlos Hernandez's that existed. Yeah. And there was nobody on the list who looked anything like uh, yeah. the guy that this uh, that the uh, the defendant was describing. Yeah. Yeah. So the jury, unsurprisingly, go right. He's going down, and not as he's not really going down, but he's going to go down and be executed because he's lied so grotesquely about what mm. apparently about what has gone on. And in the background, he's got an attack. He's got a prosecution for rape. So, mm. so the argument of the prosecution is he is a clear and present danger to women. Yeah. And that, as you know, well, that the state of Texas is grounds for execution. Exactly. Um, and, I mean, what strikes me um, is that this is not the most egregious example that anyone will have heard of in terms of a prosecution. You know, there are some cases we've heard about. You can't believe the guy was ever brought to trial or other things or there's doubt. But, the, you know, I mean, so to me, it's not in some ways because it's not so it is so seemingly cut and dry and, and without maybe going into too much detail. In some ways, it's the most damning of any case I've seen of the system. Yeah, right? no, exactly. It's exactly because it was like it's not. It's not like there's a a rogue. I don't know a rogue uh, policeman or somebody who's out to fit up somebody. It yeah. looks like it's a slam dunk case, yeah. and that's what so, that's what was so interesting for me about it, which was that you can believe one thing one day. And discover yeah. without that it might not be at 
absolutely the case the next. And yeah. what's the significance of that? Well, if you're going to execute somebody based on that, yeah. you can't go ahead with it because the whole system demands certainty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what one of your uh, one of the people in the film says. It relies on certainty, but as we know, when life and the film shows, there is no certainty, is there? Yeah, right. absolutely. And weirdly, that is in fact the prosecuting attorney who said that, which I think gives you a hint as to what then unfolds, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm happy. I mean, um, I, if people want to go, uh, I, I would suggest maybe you want to stop here and go find the film. It's easily found online. You can go to Greenwich uh, Entertainments. Uh, you can stream it there. Uh, if we do, if you don't want to have any particular spoiler alerts. Uh, um, Again, because even though I kind of, you kind of know what you're getting into when you sit, sit down to watch this film, I thought, uh, again, we can talk more about how you crafted this, but you, you, there are these twists and turns in the way you played it and trying to tell the story. You, you let them kind of almost happen in real time. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's really important because that's yeah. sort of, I mean, my background is in making documentaries in real time over years. Yeah. And so, I thought, the, you know, and one of the things that I disliked about some of my colleagues who'd made death penalty or, or miscarriage of justice films is, is you watch it and you think, oh, I know the answer from the start here. And so does the filmmaker. And it's like, it's not, it doesn't feel like you're watching a documentary so much as sort of being beaten over the head. So I thought, yeah. you know, in reality, yeah. none of us knows the truth about any given situation from the start. And it's best to treat the film almost as though it was real life, that it's unfolding in front of you and you can, oh, wow, it's going one way and then it's going another. And that's that was really important to me, that you understand how things happened as opposed to have them fit into some template set by a middle-class documentary maker. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, did you... Did you all discover anything new about the case? Because yeah, yeah, no, we yeah. completely discover things new because my other, uh, my other presiding philosophy, which drove my uh, producer mad, was that I should film everybody in the spot where things actually happened, and you should film people in multiple locations so yeah. that you know because. I don't know about you, but I don't believe that you stay in that studio where you're sitting right now for the rest of your life. You probably it's, leave there. Uh, in, in about 45 minutes, yes, hopefully. <laughs> exactly. So, and, yeah. you know, guess what? I made yeah. myself go and have a gin and tonic. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In another room. So, you know, if we're doing, you know, if we're making this movie and it's being as true to life as possible, then we should try and film people in, say, outside the house where they were held captive or yeah. in a place where a trial took took place uh, yeah. so that you know somebody can say hey i he was sitting over there he was the defendant i can remember it you know and it suddenly things come alive in a way that they normally don't uh, and i'm i'm as guilty of this as the next man or woman in that i've made films in which people mysteriously sit in one white room for uh, ooh, one hour 20, you know, yeah, with, yeah. with them being blinded by big lights. And yeah. I just thought, we've got to get away from this. We've got to move it on a notch. And it, it paid off, but it paid yeah. off in the most unexpected way in that as we were, we were recreating the moment of DeLuna's arrest, 
And the guy who actually was crawling toward him uh, on the night was once again crawling toward me, because I was sooner yeah. effectively for that moment. Yeah. And as he said, freeze, city police, don't move, or I'll shoot, yeah. um, a guy tapped my producer on the shoulder and said, I was there that night. I saw it all happen. I saw both men run. Yeah. And that yeah. was the first time in 30, then it was 31 years that, uh, that there had ever been an eyewitness to the fact that there were, as the defendant said, two people running from the gas station that That's night and, yeah. and it was amazing and then it didn't stop it was like whoa because then all the crowd of people started getting excited and they said you've got to go talk to uh right bruna mejia just a, a wee bit a few doors down and i went oh okay why well, we got to go do that and they said no no you don't understand bruno is the father of bruno mejia jr who was the cop on the night who was relaying all the witness descriptions from the scene to headquarters uh, in CCBD and right and I talked to him and he said I've always been troubled about what I was hearing because the witness descriptions were so different you know mm. I was saying he was running but he was un and he was unshaven he was wearing a gray top and another woman was saying he was running he was clean shaven and he was wearing a white shirt and the longer I talked to all the people who are there the more I realized that they were talking about two different people. So it was, anyway, it was an extraordinary moment in that um, we, to a certain extent, cracked the crime by pure accident. Yeah, I think, no, that's very, that's very interesting because it's quite, uh, quite poignant in places. I mean, I don't, you have the one, okay. is there one cop there who's, uh, I mean, I don't know if he's still a cop or not, or not but he's, he put, at least made him put on an old cop's uniform and he's testifying there in the uh, in the courtroom as he would have been testifying. Yeah, no, he, yeah. Well, he's now deputy head of police, actually. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I, I, several things come to mind. I mean, I even, um, just on the way over here, I'm not trying to give a plug to the, to the World Service, but they had a program on and a guy said he was in a courtroom doing a mock trial because he's a someone who'd been convicted now studying to get a law degree. And it, when he looked up, he realized he hadn't realized before that he was in the courtroom where he had been convicted 15 years earlier and he broke down. He just completely broke down because there's something about that yeah. pro place and immediacy that uh, there's this human connection that I think we sometimes forget about, maybe even especially when we've been under lockdown for however long it has been. Um, no, no, I mean, that was... that. Yeah, and it was really the, the, the one I alluded to earlier when yeah. we took uh, a woman back to the place where she had been kidnapped mm. by the actual likely killer yeah. and she'd been held there at age 16 and raped um, against her and forced to do things horrendously against her will. And she was seeing that house for the first time in... 20 years yeah. and she just started to cry uncontrollably and I'm not a fan of showing people crying on screen because I always think it demeans their dignity but I yeah. just this time okay I'll just show her wiping away a tear before we cut because it was a moment of raw emotion the like which you, you just don't get otherwise hmm. um, and I mean 
I think not too many British filmmakers have been to Eagle Pass, Texas. Uh, not too many. I've I, I went briefly once, but that's about it. Um, <laughs> well, they should be. Come on, I've uh, yeah. I don't know if it's a. It's certainly not the roughest place I've been, but it's like it's it's not. Uh, it's got its challenges. Let's put it that way. Um, I mean, and and then and 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 I guess this is all because I mean, this is all the whole case. Everything was on eyewitness accounts, as I think you're mentioning, and. Uh, I know, but I don't know why I'm sharing this, but I actually thought, or I did witness an attempted gangling shooting in front of the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead once. Um, I saw the two guys on a motorcycle take two pop shots at someone who was seemingly standing at A&E, and I found out later there was some, from the cops who questioned me, there was some ga- big gang f- guy in the in the ward. But interestingly, I saw the... I saw the motorcycle as a certain color, and later there's signs all over the place asking for a motorcycle. Has anyone seen a motorcycle? And it was a different color than I remembered seeing it. You know, and it's it's one of these things. It's I'm still to this day now. I'm not convinced that I did see it correctly. No, no, it's so. Um, and I early on in my career was caught. I was doing a police um, documentary as. All too many British documentary makers do. Yeah. And I wanted to do some research, and it was a rough night in a violent town in the British Midlands. Mm. And suddenly we were surrounded by a crowd of 30 odd people and they started to rock the police van to and fro. And all the police said, Patrick, this is not a time to be a hero, get inside. Don't worry, mm. there's no danger of me being a hero in any situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and then I was called up, about nine months later, I was called up to be a witness uh, at trial. And the, the barrister said, was the attorney in the British system uh, yeah. said, was the assailant wearing brown trousers or blue trousers, Mr. Forbes? And I went, brown, blue, blue, no brown. I absolutely <laughs> no like clear recollection. I just, yeah. you know, anyway, as I did have discovered, eyewitness evidence is the worst possible ev- evidence there is. Yeah. And then, so as we know, we've been talking about there's this other Carlos, there's the yeah. Dos Carloses um, that they couldn't track down, seemingly. Um, I know you get the Columbia law, legal team in, from Columbia University is involved, and they're pretty convinced that uh, um, this other Carlos might have been some sort of informant. But then I know you also get someone from the uh, DA's office who's pretty adamant that... Uh, he wasn't, and uh, you know, is it kind of a? Uh, did you come to any firm conclusions on that? Or, well, I, well, I did. Well, I, I yes, I think I have now. So I think mentally, I've now pieced it together as to how it could have worked, largely by talking to one of the other guys in the film. But that's also a hope. One of the things that people take away from. It. I don't want people to be given the answer, and so I want. Yeah. Okay. Who do I believe? Do I believe him saying he wasn't an informant? Or do I believe him? He says, oh, no, he wasn't, uh, even though he looks a bit shifty when he says he wasn't. Uh, what, I, <laughs> what I think is the truth, I think, yes. is yeah. that uh, Carlos Hernandez, the guy with an all too horrible fondness for using a knife on women, yeah. he was terrified of going to jail. He'd been, had an appalling experience in jail as a kid. And so he would do anything to stay out of jail. And Corpus at that stage was a very, very violent town. So there was a lot of stuff going on. And so 
it wasn't like he was a regular informant, but I think what would happen is as he was held up on yet another um, GBH uh, charge or you yeah. know, aggravated yeah. charge, he would trade information to stay out of jail. And that, I think, was what was going on. And yeah. so I think, as it were, both sides are right, or both sides are telling half the story. I think that's a good place to actually take a little break here for our listeners and let our sponsors say a few things. So uh, we'll be right back with Patrick Forbes, director of The Phantom. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Were you on duty at approximately 8, 8.30 that night? Yes. Spotted somebody in your uh, pickup truck. When they pulled him out from under the truck, they found a wad of bills in his front pa- pants pocket totaling $149 which was the about, about the amount of money that was taken from the cash register in the robbery of the service station. And what made it even worse, they had the audio. It was just horrible. The biggest thing that happened was the playing of the tape which was just chilling and so sad and so compelling. There was not a cough. There was not a rustle of paper. There was, everyone was wrapped. The impact was shocking to them. They're not used to hearing stuff like that. The 911 call establishes that there's absolutely no reason for him to kill her. According to the tape, she was complying. She was handing over the money. She just says, you can have it all. And then he kills her. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm with BAFTA award-winning director Patrick Forbes. The film is The Phantom, debuted at Tribeca in June. It's available at Greenwich Entertainment or various streamers, or if you're in the U.S., where most of our listeners are, actually. It's in theaters there now, and we'll be coming to cinemas here in the U.K. and around the world, hopefully very soon. Um, Patrick, how'd this film come about? By accident. (laughs) The best things in life. Uh, Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was, uh, well, I was doing another movie about uh, a little lone guy called Julian Assange. And, that guy. <laughs> and yeah. my very, very good uh, producer said, hey, have you seen the, this article about a possible miscarriage of justice in the States? And I regret to say at the time, what I said was, yeah, yeah, never mind miscarriages of justice. There are lots of those. Yeah. Um, let's concentrate on dealing with Assange. And uh, and WikiLeaks and uh, and she said no 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 this is really a big deal. There's a guy who could have got executed, and he didn't do it possibly. And I went, oh, hang on. Anyway, a couple of days later, I read the article and I just thought, wow, I'm in. This is extraordinary because it's the stuff of anyone's nightmare. You've done something. You haven't done something. You're accused of a crime, and then. Not only are you 
tried and found guilty, but you're executed. And that is the stuff of drama, of, you know, big deal feature film, or plays, of books. And so I just thought, right, we're going to do this. And I didn't, my background isn't in films about miscarriages of justice. And I deliberately don't do crusading films because I hate that kind of thing. And, but I was just in, intrigued um and so we set off to try and find out what the hell did happen now is i mean um this had been well there's original reporting and then there's obviously there's the i don't know which article you saw there's the chicago tribune three-part series that nominated for a pulitzer uh the columbia law school obviously did a lot of stuff they even turned into Mm -hmm. i think a book called the wrong carlos what did you see that made you think there's not only that there's a film here, but I'm the one to tell it. And this is, you know, this is, a, this needs a film tr- treatment, if you will. Well, <clears throat> hey, you should never ask a director why they're suited to doing something. Because <laughs> 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 you, you obviously are. You, you know. <laughs> no, it's not so much even you personally, but like why? I mean, you know, I no, mean, like I you do. said, okay. yeah, yeah, there's, there's, uh, like you said, there's an, Often they are kind of crusading films, and they're not, uh, uh, and they're horrible situations. Obviously, with these people on death row and miscarriages of sure. justice. But uh, but what was it? I mean, that you. What you was know, it no, about no. it? Well, it was about. There were two things about it. Is the honest. First of all, was as I said, the intrinsic drama in it. But secondly, when I got to Corpus to start researching it, I sort of began to realize. That, and I decided to tell it as a 360 degree movie that it was, you know, I wanted everybody on either side to tell the story. And because that's what makes films interesting, that actually it was almost like an act of catharsis for lots of people. They just were mm. fed up. As you said, there've been all these reports, like Chicago report, the reports from, you know, the Columbia. And, and the, the most common remark I got was, we're fed up with all these Northerners telling our story. We want to tell our story. It's a very Texan response. And, it is. <laughs> and, and it was like, it was extraordinary. So it wasn't really a case of, you know, I, Patrick Forbes, the greatest director in the world, are the only, is the only person who can tell this story. It was more that the whole town had decided that well, for good or ill, we're going to go with the limey and we're going to finally find somebody who <laughs> tell it our way. And yeah. that was kind of a responsibility that I felt I had to embrace. And it was extraordinary. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was... Anyway, there are so many moments. When you make documentaries, I always think that the making of the documentary is often as, or if not more interesting mm-hmm. than the film itself. And there was... Was a, there's a great character in the movie who's a really tough old school lawyer called Rene Rodriguez, who was defending the victim's family. And mm. I was having a tough day getting a lot of no's. And I rang him up and I thought, oh, I'm going to get another no. And he said, okay, you can come by for a beer. <laughs> thinking it's three in the afternoon. Right. So I went around, we had a beer. We didn't talk about anything other than um, the differences between Texas, great, England, not so great, and which he informed me at great length about. And then at the end of it all, after having laughed continuously for 45 minutes, he said, you're all right. I went, well, he said, okay, we'll do it with you. And then having 
pass some kind of test. He then rang up uh, the DA and said, all right, this guy who I've got here now, you should work with him. You should tell the story. And so I went around to the DA's office. I had my sort of interrogation at their hands. They said, all right, we'll do it. They then rang the chief of police. And so it started to happen. And the whole town decided to talk to the Limey. And as you can see, I don't have Hugh Grant's hair. And I don't have all his oh, yeah. charm. I know so you're being very harsh on yourself, but I mean, I think uh, no, but that that's that's very interesting because that's one. I mean, how did you? Because that's what's amazing about this to me is that um, you know we're coming on. It won't be long. It'll be forty years since this happened, um, and it seems like you know, except for the obvious characters, unfortunately, the victim, um, the Tipicos, the two Carlises. Um, yeah. Uh, everyone seems to still be around, mostly. I mean, and you've tracked them all down. And how did you do that? Because that was—I mean, I think you've just alluded to it. You just a lot of uh, a lot of Love time on the phone. Yeah, a, a well, lot. I have a shoe leather. It's the only way. Yeah, it's the only way. And I had, you know, I was had two very brilliant uh, Spanish-speaking producers who went to see who were both women. We think it's quite important when you're dealing with victims yeah. of real violence. Who went to see the women involved, mm. and I think that's a very important part of this film, because that's another thing I dislike about quite a lot of miscarriage of justice films is they're sort of only told with the, as it were, the boss class. They're told with, you know, the the cops and the lawyers, and you sort of weirdly don't spend much time with either the people who've been affected by Mm. the violence or have perpetrated the violence. So I thought it was Mm. really important that you get a sense of what this was about and that the victim, had her life recognized and the value of that life recognized and not traduced as is all too often the case. And mm. um, so, yeah, we just spent a lot of time in Texas and I love Texas now, I have to say. I don't know about you, but you know, since well, you're- I am living here, but that doesn't mean I've turned in my Texas citizenship. It, you know, <laughs> I think it's, uh, no, it, it, it made me, Oddly enough, a film about a miscarriage of justice did make me feel homesick because, I mean, you know, you, you this guy you're talking about, this uh, tough, uh, tough as nails uh, yeah. uh, dr- uh, lawyer for the victim's family. I mean, he's, um, in some ways, he's, he reminds me a bit of my, I mean, I'm not Hispanic, but he reminds me of my grandfather. I mean, you know, he's, it's, my grandfather would have asked you if you'd wanted to make a film, oddly enough, I don't know why you would have, but if he had been involved, he would, it would have been more like two o'clock in the afternoon and he would have asked you to over for a beer and he would have, you know, and um, he would have, whatever you would have talked about. And then he'd say, yeah, he's okay. You know, um, but that's it's, the culture and it's fantastic. And yeah. it's also, it's an amazing oral culture as well. People tell it's, stories. Yeah. Well, we've had, I mean, we've, as you can imagine, I've, I get lucky here and I've had a few Texas themed films and that's come out quite a bit about the, uh, the sort of storytelling yeah. aspects of it. I mean, people think it sounds just too good to be true or too cliche or something, but no, people do sit around and tell, or at least they did. I don't know how much it's happening more with social media and all that stuff, but, uh, you know, people telling stories, you know, yeah, people- with each other. People still to this day, I mean, I was dealing with lawyers and and people, uh, you know, in the barriers and a lot of storytelling there. But, you know, people just hang out in bars of an evening and telling stories that are often true, sometimes not. Uh, <laughs> no, 
<laughs> Speaking of, yeah, thinking of my grandfather, I'm not sure how much he what he told me is true, but uh, there you go. Um, I still believe him that my great-grandfather ran into Bonnie and Clyde, so, you know, there we go. I'll stick with it. But, uh, um, yeah. But, uh, I know- there's a serious side to it all, because, yeah. which, anyway, you can tell me better than I can tell you, but the point is that, really big deal things have happened in these towns. You know, San Antonio Corpus were for a long time the front line in a war. And that, I think, and the legacy of that and the bitterness it's brought on the one hand and also the hope and opportunism that's now bringing Mm -hmm. those places is massive. So it's it's completely fascinating. And you get a sense of, you know, people always say Britain, oh, what a place of history. Well, sort of true and not true. I think the point about Texas is history is alive and is affecting people in a way you find in very few places in the world. And that yeah. also, I hope, comes over in the movie. Um, I, I th- yeah, I think, well, you t- we were talking earlier about um, how evocative it was. I mean, it, it, there, there are things you did that, t- I mean, I grew up there in the 70s and 80s, so uh, it, I felt like I was in a bit of a time machine. Uh, I will say, I don't know if you realized how good a job you did, but I think, uh, um, but then, yeah, there's, <laughs> what's what's that? You can tell me that again. <laughs> yeah, well, you did an amazing job because it's like, oh, I know that old pickup truck. Oh, yeah, gosh. Uh, you know, and even, I mean, even just, okay, it's, yes, it's archive and TV stuff, you know, that you bring out. But it's, a, I mean, I will say, and it's making me feel old, is that how old you made the 80s look. But I don't think you you did that. I mean, that's just the reality, right? But uh, yeah. um, and speaking of which, I mean, how do you make a? How do you go about bringing a nearly forty year old case to life? Because that's yeah. that must have been a challenge. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't ironically because quite a lot of the nineteen seventies and eighties is still standing in corpus, and that was yeah my the surprise because when I went to the courtroom. I didn't think to myself, this will be the very courtroom where this trial took place. And then somebody said, you do realize nothing has changed in 40 years. So I had an amazing set, if I'm to use a crude term to work with. Mm. But Mm. then then you had the extraordinary witnesses who were all who could bring it to life in that Texan way. But also I think one of one of the things I've noticed in when you're making these kind of films, you don't want to pierce the veil. You don't want actors to say things. So I thought that when I was recreating events and mm. directly recreating it, it was going to be mute and nobody would be suddenly turning to each other and saying, hey, get me the bird in that terrible yeah. way that people do. Or that, you know, there's an awful thing you can often see in, you know, World War II movies. Hello, Stalin, where is... I don't know, Brezhnev or whatever. Yeah, you just, yeah. That's not how people talk. So yeah. I thought yeah, it was yeah. quite important that you create completely credible environments that were as dramatic as conceivably could be. And then people would then tell the story. And from that moment on, you'd sort of hopefully feel you were in the 1970s and 80s and you weren't being sort of jerked into a present reality. Yeah, I think because as you as you're already readily aware, I mean, reenactments have a bit of a bad name in, or can't, and rightfully so in many cases. So, um, yeah. you know, how do you go about doing that without taking, taking away from the story or, or creating the 
Yeah. And also in my case, the, the great movie that you want to sort of slightly measure yourself against is The Thin Blue Line, which is yeah, exactly yeah. is completely beautiful and stunning. And you just think, whatever we do, um, we <laughs> mustn't in any way, we can pay homage to it subtly, which I hope we did, but you mustn't in any way try and replicate it. So, what? Yeah. And then I think, um, and as I said, uh, you know, I will say it again, uh, does, uh, I think you're right. I mean, I w that's what surprised me that when you were filming, I was like, God, places like that are still standing. So like some of the, like the lounges in the, in the barrios and the, yeah, yeah, you know, some of these places, the houses, the shotgun shacks in some of the neighborhoods, the, um, the projects which, you know, people think of America, they think projects, they think, you know, tall up high rises in Chicago or New York, yeah. but these low rise versions that you get in Texas, or he's talking to someone else in, you know, even other states, which was more the the style. And I, it, you know, I've, I've been in a few of those places and that's, you know, they're still there. They're not, they don't look any different than they did 40, 50 years ago, as you yeah, said. They don't. And, and, Tragically, the conditions inside those places are still pretty much the way they were in 40, 50 years ago. And and it's still corpus, it's still quite a rough town. And you could sort of see, that was the other thing that struck me during the initial research, apart from the extraordinary fact that most of it was still standing in the place, you know, pretty yeah. much untouched, yeah. was that, that edge of violence, which lies behind the movie, was still around. I mean, I did an initial recce uh, to film uh, a trailer for the movie. And mm. as we were doing it, just the three of us, people started to emerge out of the shadows. And I found myself with a guy standing in front of me saying, what do you think you're doing? And anyway, I explained in my best, in this instance, Hugh Grant accent. Yes. <laughs> yes. And anyway, it worked. And we walked away and I said to the guys, uh, or rather, one of the guy, uh, one of the uh, the assistants said to the director of photography, "So, how many do you think we're packing?" And he said, "Everybody." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's been. I mean, I know because uh, I know the war you're alluding to is the you know actual wars that have occurred and the how uh, your your uh, the prosecuting attorney uh, talks about what life was like between the Nueces and the Rio Grande up until. A, relatively recently uh it's been depicted in various ways in fiction and you know even lonesome dove i think talks about it and uh, places like things like that but it was also i mean what i do pick up even as a little really little kid was that there's you know drug wars going on there was um you know heroin was big in the 60s and I mean, 70s and i think into the 80s and then other drugs came along and yeah. uh there there were always so it doesn't have to be corpus all these all those towns of our cities of a certain size had areas they had the barrios they had these places there was the every night on the local news led with a story of a stabbing at one of these a lounge in one of these neighborhoods and things like that and it just kind of in that sense, the way it was covered too was became sort of almost self fulfilling. This is you, yeah, no good, yeah. no go areas. You didn't, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly, and no go know. areas and areas where where there's so much crime and so much violence that the local police weren't trying as hard as they should have been. And there's such a volume of crime. And one of the the other themes in the movie, which he picked up on, is you know people that again and again 
amongst the cops say it was like the wild west back then man we didn't mm. want to you know we didn't waste around and the the pathologist incredibly said yeah if there was anything involving a child we just hang the guy on the nearest tree and that would be that and you yeah. just think what right wow that's a bit different um so yeah it was you can understand given all that melee of history of current violence of drugs starting to come through mm -hmm. and corpus is a very big deal port very close to some major shipping routes so yeah yeah um, the tale is that a lot of colombia's second main export went through it that this was a town on the edge of falling apart as much mm. as and there were i've been shown pictures from the time you were growing up but there were hookers literally with standing on street corners every hundred yards i mean the whole the fabric of the whole place was collapsing and this crime is emblematic not only of a complete yeah. failure on the part of the judicial system but also of a sort of terrifying breakdown in social order that was underway at that time just as you said and and to be honest now that i think about it we kind of lived with it i mean we uh yeah um it just reminded me one of the things i had to do when i did driving school as a 16 year old was uh they would take us on a night drive and they would take us downtown in san antonio to the one of these streets you're talking about and just drive us through where all the um all the pro hookers were standing, yeah. It was Cherry Whoa. Street. And wow. it was just, the, the whole, well, we had, so you, you know what a DPS officer is? A, yeah. Is, is, yeah, so uh, he, he was a former DPS officer, ran this driving school, and he would just, he had all kinds of things. So one school class was, he had all these probably pirated photos of really bad car accidents from the 60s in 70s that he would show us to scare us straight not to ever drive speed or anything like that i mean this is before like seat belts and certainly airbags or anything like this so you know this is like it's going to scare the hell out of you um and then um yeah that was like you got to you went drove to, that was the big thing you knew you were going to drive downtown and it was like I have no idea. It was so weird and so dodgy in that sense. But the idea was that to keep your eye on the road. So <laughs> so don't be distracted. If sure. you ever, yeah, don't be distracted by what you may or may not be seeing, you know, on the on the street corners. Um, but, uh, but yeah, these were kind of, kind of accepted sort of things, you know, and you don't realize how, uh, until you see things like your film or talk about it, that, uh, you know, these things were happening. They weren't, uh, I don't know, there's all this reminiscing and we can feel nostalgic for times and ch youth and stuff like that. But there's also things that I wouldn't necessarily want to have to have to relive. So yeah, uh, no, well, it was weird because it, it like you say, people were living with it, but there's a funny gap in the Corpus uh, Museum's library of pictures. Strangely, there are none from the 1980s, 1970s and early 80s. And I think it's for precisely that reason. It was such a violent town that mm. people live with it, but they don't want to look back on what the hell actually happened then too much yeah. for fear, yeah. fear of uncovering more stuff like this. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
you were talking too. You've mentioned your uh, liminess a few times. I mean, as you've it, that helped, uh, but uh, did it pose any challenges? Or, yeah, yeah, or, of course it posed some challenges. I mean, you know, I. Yeah, I mean, it posed challenges in that beyond a certain time, you could sense that people were thinking, "Am I really going to tell him all this?" Sure, yeah. I want to unburden my soul. And then the sort of gravity of the case overwhelmed it. But yeah, I think you'd be, I would be lying if I didn't say it did. I mean, you know, because yeah. for good, it gave, I mean, it was an advantage for me as a filmmaker in that I had arguably a slightly clearer perspective on it simply because I was such an outsider in that mm. sense. So people would talk to me and they'd be interested in talking to me as an outsider, but obviously enough. You know, you're going to tolerate an outsider like, like a guest in your home. You're going to, after a while, you're going to think, oh, is there no time that Patrick is going to leave? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's already been here for two nights. I mean, I think we're, you know, I wasn't expecting him to stay that long, you know. Um, yeah, I think, or, and, but at, at the same time, it gives you some license, doesn't it? I mean, you can ask any question. No one, there is no stupid questions because you're the outsider. You could, oh, he's just that British guy who doesn't know anything about, Texas or no? Nah, well, no. The, that was the that was the great advantage of, of doing the film the way we did it. In that, all my questions were stupid. In it, in a sense, <laughs> they were all like, "So what happened then?" Which is how I like to ask questions. I don't like, you know, I don't like asking questions that show you in a good light. And there's a terrible tradition amongst current affairs journalists yeah. that they're yeah. completely uninterested in what the person in front of them is actually saying. All it's about is the length of their question. And I'm, yeah. I hope, I mean, I notice you are the other way around. You ask mm. the simple, direct question. What happened? What did they do then? You know, mm. to that extent, we're the dummies. But I'd say better to be dumb and an outsider than any other way. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very good at being a dummy. Um, whether I'm an outsider or not is another another issue. But uh, yeah, I think, uh, well, I, or the other way I look at it is I'm not very interesting, so I'd rather hear what the uh, other person has to say. Um, but, um, uh, and then I guess, as you s said earlier, you had these, um, uh, you had these two women, two, were they researchers or uh, fellow filmmakers that were helping you with the... So yeah, I thought it was important that the one thing that we were not going to be an outsider... And the one thing that was really vital was that if you have been, a, if you're a woman and a Hispanic woman and you have been attacked and yeah. brutalized and nearly killed, you need to be speaking in your native tongue to somebody who understands you perfectly, though there's no dissonance. And mm. I felt that was a way of showing respect to them, if mm. no other thing. And I, so, Yes, uh, to that extent, I wasn't reliant on being an outsider. In fact, the re exact reverse, because I thought, yeah. you know, if you're going to tell that story, you've got to, you've just got to let everybody take it slow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, you, um, I think we touched on it briefly earlier, but even this woman that you've, uh, you tracked down and met with her on the, on the border, I mean, who, who showed the scars, yeah. literally the scars, I mean, that was... That's that's an incredible scene. And it was an it was a it was a ridiculous moment because we had been the whole interview process had been very fraught, and the yeah. place that we were interviewing had 
we had been warned that it was a lot of cartel activity. And so we were late getting there because there had been so many border checks and so many checks from our security. So the whole interview had a sort of atmosphere of heightened tension. Anyway, we start rolling and almost without any warning, she suddenly says, you know, you understand what was this guy was like and lifts up her shirt in this childlike manner and shows the scar that he had created by using a knife to slice mm. open her stomach like that. And it was, it was incredibly moving. I can remember that one of the crew was wiping a tear away in the corner. Um, mm. My female producer who'd done it was, wasn't able to look and and it was a sort of perfect illustration of both the violence that men, particularly men, can speak. Mm. And secondly, the legacy of it 30, 40 years later, she was still mm. as traumatized today as she was then. It had completely ruined her life. And this was her way of showing it. And she had she had fled uh, from mm. Corpus. She fled across. The, first of all, she fled to San Antonio, mm. but Carlos Hernandez had pursued her there. And then she just thought, "There's no way I'm going to get away from this guy unless I flee back to Mexico." So she crossed the border, and she would never uh, come anywhere near mm. Texas yeah. uh, for fear, even though he's dead, for fear that, as it were, a bad man would mm. come after her. It was it was horrendous and very very moving. And and as you as you said previously as well, I mean, bringing this back to the to the whole ridge, and you even the film starts with Wanda Lopez, right? And the and yeah. the, the victim of this horrendous, very vicious, vicious vicious murder. I mean, and I don't think maybe I'm sure you picked up on this, but I remember as a kid when you'd hear like maybe a family member or someone you knew was going to start working at a um, filling station, gas station, whatever you want to call it, at on a, at late at night, that that was almost a death sentence. I mean, that was you know these these robberies of gas stations at the at yeah, late yeah. at night with armed you know in certainly in certain neighborhoods, you just knew that that so this this is a woman who was as I think you've picked up very well in talking to the lawyer. And he's even mentioned now seeing her daughter who's grown up and the the impact that this has all had on her. Yeah. Um, these were this was someone who was trying to make as best she could the most of her life, and then she just gets um, well. And it's a classic you know, thing. She was a single yeah. mother with a young baby, and yeah. where are you going to get a job? And you're going to have to work at night. Yeah. After yeah. she's gone to sleep, and when somebody's looking after her, yeah. and like you said, it's this was the place that she was working was the roughest place imaginable. It was right next to a biker bar and across the way from a strip joint. So it was not a delightful clientele who were passing through that gas station, and it was a particularly tough uh, gang that frequented the biker bar. So it was a really, really rough place. And the irony of it was that she had been moved on from another slightly safer gas station because she had quite rightly and honestly pointed out that the manager was stealing the cash from the cash desk. So, Oh, my goodness. So yeah, that's no, no, a, it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it, no. anyway, the whole, no. the whole film is about how life can basically take a succession of wrong turns with just no warning. Mm. Anyway. And 
Yes, and I and I think and thank you so much for for making it because I think it's it's uh, um, because it's it's more. Th- I mean, <laughs> on that note, it sounds very heavy. <laughs> it sounds very depressing. Which I mean, obviously, there's horrible things that happen, but you've told it in a way that I don't think that I think that doesn't. I hate to say it, but doesn't get in the way of the story, right? I mean, I yeah. think for some people that might be. Like you said, campaign films, I don't think those work because they hit, try to hit people over the head. Other yeah. things have happened. But this is, is told in a very, using your storytelling roots, it's told in a way that gets that pulls you in, gets you interested in the story. And then when it's all said and done, it's like reading any, you know, great story. You've, you've, you've learned a lot and uh, yet you've, you know, maybe gone places you hadn't necessarily thought you would. Well, I don't, I think that's, don't you think that's key as well, is that I, I don't know, I'm a terrible devotee of detective fiction. So I felt that on one level, this film should work as, you know, I don't know what Poirot, I mean, that's the trivia, yeah. but it should, be, it should be about finding out. And then yeah. all the messages are there to be found, found and discussed and talked about later, but it should actually be as a, fi- it should work as a film. Yeah. That's what it's about. We're all sitting down for 80 minutes, you know? Yeah. And you should be drawn along and along the way, you should think to yourself, is this really happening? Ooh, I yeah. wonder who did it. What's that? Oh, do I like him? Mm, not sure about her. Uh, All the stuff that you do when yeah. you sit down in front of a TV to watch, a, I don't know, a Netflix drama of an evening or stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. I think that's really important as well. Though, and, 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 and for me personally, you didn't try to draw it out over several episodes. You didn't try to... <laughs> I won't name names, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's like... Uh, uh, you know, this, that's what do they say? You, you, how long should it be? It's as long as it takes to tell the story, and that's exactly what you've. You yeah, know, yeah. Well, you've I, got, you know, so funny. Oh, God. Well, that at least is only about the only advantage of being the director that I am is that they did come to me at some stage and say, uh, "Look, do you think we should make this over six episodes?" And I just, <laughs> I just laughed and said, "Really." God, it's been tricky enough to get it to 80 minutes. <laughs> Man, it'd be like watching War and Peace without any of the excitement. Come yes, on. Exactly. And then, and then, as you say, making you, you how important was the, the musical score? In your... uh, vital. Completely vital. Because nodding to, I think this is the, the, you know, the astute watcher will have guessed that that's the, the most obvious homage to Thin Blue Line. Because one of the things mm-hmm. that happens in that movie is there's an amazing score by Philip Glass. Right, and that's the right, ultimate yeah. in sort of rhythmic driving mm-hmm. uh, music. So I thought, okay, well, we've got a standard here. And Rob, who's a brilliant composer, I sort of said, yeah, Philip Glass. And he went, oh, great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we worked incredibly hard. I know every director incredibly hard with the composer, but we really, really did work incredibly hard. And let me tell you, working incredibly hard with your composer is tough at the best of times, and it's tougher still in the pandemic. And eventually, we had to go and sit in the same studio. And he looked at me and said, well, if you infect me, my children will be very unhappy. And I said, and so will mine, Rob. So on that basis, we then spent four of the most intense days of my life working out how we score this movie so that it goes that its journey as it were mirrors the journey of the movie you start thinking one thing you start to change your mind midway through and then you have the shock of your life after about 
40 minutes. Hmm. Well, I think it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I picked up on it. It's definitely, it's one of those things. Well, I, I picked up on it. I shouldn't say it quite that way. I mean, it's one of those things, it, like any good score, you don't at first maybe even notice it at first before then yeah, you Yeah, well, realize. that's vital. Yeah. That's absolutely yeah. vital. It was one of the things that we we did and, and working with the sound engineers was that we felt that you had to create space rather than being in your face, like the glass score, that mm. you had to create space around the characters so that you're just, it's sort of subtly moving you on. It's like, it's not like the child tugging your arm. It's mm. almost, it's like, I'm sort of gently ushering you toward another place. I hope. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think I think you did. I think you've achieved that. And uh, what we've also achieved is, uh, I think we've about to come up on the end of our time uh, oh. together. Um, so I, I hate to say, but uh, I mean, before we uh, f- do sign off, uh, I mean, what's what's next for you now that you've well, unfortunately, got this next to me. And so far as I can talk about it. Is they always do this related to the thing that we've all been experiencing around the world. That's all I can say because the negotiations are underway. Um, but if it comes off, it will be extraordinary. Um, uh, anyway, there have been some positives that come out of this horrible experience, and I believe we're about to have exclusive access to one of the positives. So, if that is, that will mm. be what you'll be sitting through in two to three years' time, anyway. Okay. Well, <laughs> but speaking of which, now, has there... Because a lot of the films we bring onto this were either mostly filmed before the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, a lot of post-production, obviously, massive amounts of post-production done during the pandemic. Do you think there's been a bit of a dip? In, do we think you're, there's going to be a gap here where there's not really... Oh, yeah, that undoubtedly. Much? I mean, it's yeah. been... I don't know, for people in jobs like yours and mine, I think it's been the most uh, frightening wake-up call because you sit there, or I sat there after Mm. two months of the first lockdown and I looked at my wife and I said, Matt, this could be the end of my career. And she, in that sensible, wifely way, went, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Stop moaning. It'll be all right, okay? But no, being serious, all around the world, anyone who makes documentaries was thinking, wow, what am I going to do? Or indeed, to a lesser extent, feature films, because they managed to um, solve their problems early. But a profession that depends on standing two feet from somebody and asking them questions isn't exactly the best thing you can do in the middle of COVID. Yeah, (laughs) and not everyone can make an archival-driven... No duck, you know, or nor would they want to, you know. What I mean, I mean, it's it's just, uh, you know, it's no. It's I think some... well, I mean, I think part of the fascination of what we both do is that mm. humans mm. are endlessly interesting and curious, and you don't do this job. You don't do this job to get rich. Hey, you do this yeah. job because you like stories and you like people, and that's why you do it. And you know, you meet the most extraordinary people, and you stumble across the most unlikely stories. Well, 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 I guess, and I'm I'm happy that we've uh, I shouldn't say stumbled upon you, but that we finally got you onto the show, and uh, it's great to have you on, Patrick. It's 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 been a joy, and um, look forward to hopefully it's not two to three years, but even if it is, uh, you know, uh, look forward to having you again and to uh, talking to you about this this next uh, project. It's been, a, it's been a real pleasure. That's been great. 
So big thank you again to Patrick Forbes, the director of The Phantom, available now wherever you stream, or you can go to Greenwich Entertainment's website, or if you're in the States, it's in theaters on a selected run. A big shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio uh, in Eskrick, England. That's just outside York. A big thanks to Nivena Paunovic, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting such great guests like Patrick onto the show. And finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.